Our Father, we are told in Scripture that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. And if there's anything that sheep need, they need guidance and they need direction and they need leadership. In another psalm, the psalmist made this statement that you are the God who guides us until death. And that is a comfort to us. That is a a benefit of knowing Jesus Christ and trusting in him as our Savior and as our Master, as our God, as our King, as our Lord, as our Shepherd. You guide us. You direct us. You said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check. When we ask for guidance, you'll give it to us. But when we ask for that guidance, you expect us to adhere to it and to follow it. We thank you that you give us guidance through your word. We thank you that you give us guidance through other believers who walk with you. He who walks with wise men shall be wise. We thank you that we have your wisdom available to us. And it's not the wisdom of men. It's not the wisdom of the world. It's your wisdom. It is such a a superior wisdom, there's no comparison. And you have said to us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. You promised us wisdom when we need it. You promised us guidance when we need it. Uh, It's not always immediate. We don't always have the next year's guidance given to us in a moment. It's, It's moment to moment. It's hour by hour. It's day by day. But when we need it, it's there. You always let us know what the next right step is. And that's guidance. Uh, so, so often we'd like the answer. We, we would like the resolution because we're in a complex situation. We'd like to know how things are going to work out a year from now. That's not how it works. You want us trusting in you. you. You want us looking to you on a daily basis. A daily basis. We need manna every day. We need you every day. So, Father, thank you for the promise of guidance. I pray that we would take advantage of it. And even as we study tonight, and we're living in a culture that is far from your wisdom and far from your guidance and considers your truth reprehensible. May we listen carefully, because if we'll listen, you'll guide us and you'll navigate us through treacherous times and treacherous situations. So we look to you. We we thank you that your your truth um, is... Well, we build our lives on it. And that your truth is light in darkness. So encourage us tonight. Give each man what he needs. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
So tonight, we are actually, we've been two months on the seventh commandment. We are actually moving on to the eighth commandment. That's called progress. But uh, there's so much to these commandments, these 10 commandments. We started this study back in September. I mean, I'm convinced you could take three months and teach three months on each commandment because they're broad and they cover so much of life. They are central to all of life. I'd like us to go to Exodus 20 tonight because it's been a while since we have actually read the Ten Commandments. Um, and I'd like to start by doing that tonight. So in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are God's moral law. And they're for all people in all cultures and all generations for all time. And even if someone doesn't have a Bible, if someone is in a remote jungle and has never heard the name of Christ, God has written those commandments on their hearts and they know them intuitively. Romans 2 tells us. So in Exodus chapter 20, Moses is given those 10 commandments and let's just begin in verse one. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, now, actually, verse 3 is the first commandment. Verses 1 and 2 are what we would call the preamble. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Next commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Next commandment, seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Next commandment, verse eight, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Then jump down to 12, next commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. 13, verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Those are the Ten Commandments. Those are the basis of all law and ethics in Western civilization or Christian civilization. Uh, every nation has a foundation our foundation in this country, we have documents, but those documents are based on something. And if you take a tour of Washington, D.C., you're gonna see scripture uh, carved in stone and marble everywhere. Because uh, we're not based on the Koran, we're not based on Eastern mysticism, we're based on the Word of God. That was our foundation. I have mentioned before Wayne Grudem. Uh, Wayne is an excellent theologian. He writes large books. This is his book, Christian Ethics. 
He has a systematic theology that he's written that is about the same size. He has one on politics that is about the same size. Uh, he's just a prolific student of the Word of God and an excellent writer. And uh, he, uh, a, guys, a lot of guys who are theologians have trouble communicating. Wayne's very clear in his communication. If you were with us in past weeks, I mentioned to you that the section on you shall not commit adultery covers 190 pages. The section on you shall not steal, which we're going to get into tonight, is well over 100 pages. But in the middle of this first chapter, he has a section called the importance of the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And that's where I want to begin tonight. And I just want to read several paragraphs from this. The importance of the eighth commandment. If the eighth commandment implies private ownership of property, say what? And we'll back up in a few minutes and demonstrate that as the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, protects marriage, so you shall not steal, protects property rights, believe it or not. If the eighth commandment implies private ownership of property, then its focus is different from that of the other nine commandments. The eighth commandment covers an entire range of human activity that is not addressed by the other commandments. This, this study that we're doing, if you uh, get a CD back there, the series uh, title is Building on Bedrock. The commands, these 10 commands were written by God on stone. That stone is bedrock. It's bedrock for, for us as followers of Christ. It is the moral law of God. Now, our nation is running from it and rebelling against it. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, but we have got um, people running the wrong direction and they want nothing to do with this. But it is bedrock. And even though half the nation is running or more, from the truth of God, we're going to be like Joshua, and we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're building on bedrock. We're building on these Ten Commandments. Because nine of the ten are fulfilled in the New Testament, and the Sabbath one was fulfilled by Christ, who accomplished the work that only he could do, and he has given us eternal rest in Christ. Not that we don't take a day off. But back to what Grudem was saying. So the, the Eighth Commandment addresses issues that are not addressed in any of the other commandments. For instance, Commandments 1 through 4, which we just read, focus primarily on our relationship to God and the duties we owe to Him. Commitment 5, honor your father and your mother, protects family. Commandment 6, protects life, you shall not murder. Commandment 7 protects marriage. You shall not commit adultery. Commandment 9 protects truth. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Commandment 10 requires purity of heart. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's, your neighbor's wife or anything that is your neighbor's. 
By implication, the 10th commandment also requires purity of heart regarding all the other commandments. But it adds no unique area of life as an additional focus that was not already treated in the previous commandments. Therefore, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is unique. It protects property and possessions. How many of you guys have homeowner's insurance? Okay. That's kind of what the eighth commandment is. It's God's homeowner's insurance. By implication, we are right to think it also protects another person's time, talents, and opportunities. Everything over which people have been given stewardship. We are not to steal someone else's property, time, talents, or opportunities. Without the Eighth Commandment, therefore the Ten Commandments, would not cover in summary form all aspects of our moral life. That's important. Because the Ten Commandments do cover every aspect of our lives morally. Now, what's interesting in the times in which we are living is that every one of these commands is under attack. Do you ever just read the news and just go, what? I mean, you think it can't get any worse. You think it can't get any crazier. It can't get any more insane. And it does. Because all that is good and right and holy and pure and godly, there is absolute resistance and defiance towards. It's defiance towards the living God. What is it with this socialism thing? Where did that come from? I mean, like all these other things, this stuff just comes out of nowhere and it, and it picks up, it's, it's like a, avalanche in the Rocky Mountains. All of a sudden, it's not there, and then all of a sudden, shoo. Socialism breaks this commandment. And some people think, well, the Bible, that's not relevant. Are you kidding me? Not only is it relevant, it's the only thing you can hold on to when people and nations are going insane. It's, it's the glue it's the adhesive. It's the stabilizing force when everything and everyone around you is losing their minds. Without the Eighth Commandment, Grudem goes on and says, the Ten Commandments would not cover in summary form all aspects of our moral life. We would have God's instructions protecting worship and family life, marriage and truth. But where would the Ten Commandments tell us what we should do with our possessions, our time, our talents, and our opportunities. Yes, the first four commandments would instruct us in the worship of God, but beyond such worship, would we be expected to achieve anything beyond mere subsistence living? Would we be expected just to act as the animal kingdom does, eating, sleeping, bearing offspring, and dying, with no other achievements to show the excellence of the human race created in the image of God? God created us in his image so that we could be creative and so that we could achieve and that we could do something with our lives. There you go. God's got a purpose for you and for the guy next to you, for your wife, for your kids, for your grandkids. 
He forms them in the womb. He gives them gifts. He withholds gifts. He's got a plan and purpose, and he wants to do something through us for his glory and for the good of our neighbors. The Eighth Commandment also implies that we have property to care for. Therefore, it is this commandment that sets us apart from the animal kingdom as property owners and those who have been given stewardship. We're responsible for something. We are responsible for the stewardship of the possessions that God gives to us. In that way, the Eighth Commandment relates to most of our work activity for most of our earthly lifetimes. So what, what, what is our, our what, basically what's our life? We get up, we go to work, and we work hard. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So whatever kind of work you do, ultimately as a believer, you're serving Christ. And you want to do that work as, to the best of your ability because the Lord sees it. And ultimately you're working for him. I mean, if you're an architect, draw those plans. And draw them as best you can because the Lord's watching. If you're a software engineer, do your work to the glory of God. If you're an airline mechanic, please. <laughs> do your work to the glory of God. Does it not matter how people do their work? Yes. Some guys love outlines. We just dealt with number one on our outline the importance of the Eighth Commandment. Let's go to number two. Let's talk about the emphasis of the Eighth Commandment. And I, I'm basically gonna give you Grudem stuff tonight. It's just so clear, it's so well-researched. Uh, you know, they say, I learned this in college, if you borrow from one source, it's plagiarism. If you borrow from many, it's research. I've read other sources, but tonight I'm, and, but plagiarism is when you take somebody's stuff and you don't give them credit. This is Grudem stuff, and it's good stuff. So let's talk about the emphasis of the Eighth Commandment. And, and this is, you know, I've already given you a, a taste of this, but this is fascinating. So the Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal, Exodus 20, 15. It basically means that you should not take something that does not belong to you. There you go, there's a logical explanation. The same commandment is repeated in the New Testament. Romans 13, nine says you shall not steal. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.10 says thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Ephesians 4.28, let he who steals steal no longer but work with his hands. Now, Grudem is going to say something that's so simple, yet it's so profound in this first paragraph. The command you shall not steal assumes that there is something to steal. Something that belongs to someone else and not to you. You should not steal someone else's ox or donkey or his car or his cell phone or his computer because it belongs to him and not to you. Therefore, therefore, watch the logic here, the Eighth Commandment assumes private ownership of property. That's a big deal. Because we got all of these isms that do not assume private ownership 
of property, yet God, that's his premise. So we have socialism, and this has been around since the Depression, uh, published in different forms. But just uh, you know, some swift definitions of some economic uh, approaches to life. So socialism means if you have two cows, the government takes one and gives it to your neighbor. That's socialism. Communism is you have two cows, the state takes both and gives you some milk. Fascism is you have two cows, the state takes both and sells you some milk. Nazism, you have two cows, the state takes both and shoots you. Bureaucratism, you have two cows, the state takes both, shoots one, milks the other, and then throws the milk away. I like these. You see, it keeps talking about the state. What's the state doing? Property wasn't given to the state. Property was given to individuals. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, God gave them the land. And, you know, yeah, he gave it to the 12 tribes. And he plotted out the land. And this is your land, and da-da-da, and da-da-da. But you see, those 12 tribes are made up of individuals. And among that, you know, those counties, if you will, those 12 counties, you can call them that, each particular head of family had a slot of land. And that was passed on and passed on and passed on. We'll see that later. Then you have traditional capitalism. Traditional capitalism, or free markets, you have two cows, you sell one and buy a bull, your herd multiplies and the economy grows, you sell them and retire on the income. How do you like that? You say, well, that makes all kinds of sense. Yeah, it does. But there's nothing in there about the state. Is there? No, there's not. Yet the state keeps wanting to creep in. Interesting how that works. Venezuela. Uh, how many years ago? The most prosperous nation in South America. More natural resources than any other nation in South America. Fabulously wealthy country. And we all know what's happened to Venezuela. Uh, U.S. News had an article that was done in 2016 by a gentleman a citizen of Venezuela. It's called How Socialism Failed Venezuela. Uh, excellent article. I'll just read you one paragraph out of this article. He says this. Socialism assumes that government officials are more qualified than individuals to decide how much a person should earn, which products and services are necessary for that person to live, and how much that person should have to pay for them. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. The government makes all of these decisions and more, but only after taking a huge piece of the pie for itself, leaving the remainder to ration among the majority who don't have political connections. You know what that's called? That's called stealing. Stealing. So I saw a thing in the last month on Fidel Castro's son. 
And all this kid does is jet set around the world. He lives like Paris Hilton. He, he's worth, nobody knows how many millions he's worth. He flies around in private jets. He just, where did he get that money? He's a thief. His father was a thief. His uncle's a thief. They're just thieves. When I graduated from college, and I was going to go to seminary, I wanted to work for a couple of years and get some money under my belt for seminary. When I was a junior in high school, I worked at the San Francisco airport valet parking. It was a sweet job because guys would, you know, in valet parking, I mean, I drove Ferraris, I drove Porsches, I drove Fossil Vegas, whatever the heck that is, it's made in Spain. Uh, you know, back then they were the San Francisco Warriors, Rick Barry would pull his car up, Nate Thurman, different athletes. I mean, we go out on the ramp and there are these, I mean, luxury, luxury, luxury cars. Uh, because my dad had a friend who was head of that. He got me a job, and, but I had to get a union card because that's a union shop. And so at 17, I had a union card and I was making good money. Uh, I had that job for a couple years, went off to college, and then I come back from college and I need to find some work. Well, I found another job that was a union job that paid really well. What was interesting, it, it was in a different field, but it was a fairly new company. And they said they'd hire me and told me my start date. And when I went in there, there were two owners. One of the owners pulled me aside and said, he said, I need to mention something to you. We're just getting started. We're just getting off the ground. We got a lot of expenses that, that uh, I can't pay you the union wage, but I can pay you this. And I mean, this guy had a great story. And I'm just a kid and I'm, I'm believing him. And I said, that's fine. Okay, I needed a job. I mean, they're trying to get something going. Okay, fine. And then a few months go by and I notice not the car he drives, the cars he drives. And then the cars his partner drives. And then they build a brand new facility. And then I hear about the house that he built and then the house that his buddy built. And then one of the guys who works with me uh, shows up in a new Porsche. And I said, man, that, that, man what, that's a beautiful car. I said, wow. I said, that had to set you back. He said, it didn't cost me anything. I said, it didn't cost you anything. He said, no. No, they got it for me. And I said, what? He said, they got it for me. I said, why do they get that for you? I said, well, you know, I figured out what they were doing. They got a scam going on here. So I just went and talked to them and I said, I want what you owe me. Oh, and by the way, I want a Porsche. And they gave it to him. I thought about that for a while. And one day I went in there and I talked to the guy who hired me and gave me the sob story. And I said, hey, I just wanted to run something by you. Uh, 
I'm not believing what you told me on my first day. I don't think you were up front with me. Oh, what are you talking about? Well, I see your cars. I know about your houses. You guys are cleaning up. And here's what I want. I don't want a Porsche. And I don't want back pay. I just want from today on what you owe me. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to the National Labor Relations Board. And this guy got a little upset. He was, uh, you know, he'd been a great athlete in an All-American college, and he got up out of his chair and walked over and he says, you're not doing that. I said, I am doing it. He said, I'm telling you, I got ways that you're not doing it. And I said, well, you better implement your ways because I am doing it. And you're not stopping me. And he tried the intimidation thing, and as of the next day, I was pulled off the night shift, which paid time and a half, to the day shift, and I had a better shift, and I got my pay. And it was that way for two years. Oh, and then he said to me in that when I had that kind he said, I can't believe you would do this. I can't believe your lack of integrity. I said, my lack of integrity. He said, yeah, aren't you going to seminary? Aren't you going to be a pastor? He said, man, I'd never go to your church. I said, well, I'm not a thief. You're the thief, not me. He was stealing my money. He was stealing my wages and paying off the union rep. And not only my money, most of the guys in there. He was stealing their money with a sob story and, and giving it under the table to this union rep. The emphasis is private ownership of property. Private ownership of property. All right? It's very important. Whether it's your cell phone or your house or your car, you own it. Under this emphasis of the Eighth Commandment, I'll give you private ownership of property. You also got protection of private property. You got property, property boundaries were protected. And you've got the propensity of governments to seize property. All right, let's break that down. So the private ownership of property. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, you've got support for private ownership of, pro of private property. There are passages in the Old Testament, Grudem says, that God was concerned to protect the private ownership of property. Property was to be owned by individuals, not by the government or by society as a whole. For instance, God told the people of Israel that when the year of Jubilee came, it shall be every 50 years, the year of Jubilee. It shall be a Jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property, not government housing, and each of you shall return to his clan that had been marked out in the scripture. They had the plats. They'd gone to the title company and they had all the papers, okay? Uh, then you've got another thing is that if someone uh, took your property, there were punishments outlined in the Old Testament for stealing and for appropriate restitution and damage for another person's farm animals or agricultural fields. Exodus 21, uh, Exodus 22, you, there, were, there were punishments and there was restitution because you took or damaged private property. Then you had property boundaries. Uh, you've got passages in the Old Testament. It, it says, 
You shall not move your neighbor's boundary, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that your Lord your God has given you to possess. That's Deuteronomy 19.14. You shall not move the ancient boundaries. Proverbs 22.8. Don't miss with the boundaries because you're stealing somebody's property. Then you've got the propensity for governments to take private property. Uh, Grudem says the, government, the Old Testament also shows an awareness that governments could wrongly use their immense power to disregard property rights and steal what they should not. The classic passage on this is 1 Kings 21. So in 1 Kings 21, you have got uh, a wicked king by the name of Ahab. He has a wife who is even more evil than he is by the name of Jezebel. 1 Kings 21. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Remember, Ahab was bad news. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place, if you like. I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. I can't give that land to you. It belongs to me and my clan and my family. It doesn't belong to the government. It belongs to us as individuals. It's passed on from generation to generation. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the words which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and he ate no food. <laughs> Because he's the king. He should be able to get anything he wants. So he's in his bed, pouting, upset. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Please give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you, not, do you now reign over Israel? You're the king. Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him, saying, you curse God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And they did. They did. Uh, these people were crooks. They were killers. They were liars. They were deceivers. They loved power. They would do anything to hold on to power. They were lawbreakers. They were the wicked of the wicked. And it seemed like whatever they did, they got off. Nobody could touch him. He was very ambitious politically. She was more ambitious than he ever thought of being. But the thing that brought them down was a land deal. Was it not? A vineyard. I could say, say some things, but I just, I probably won't. <laughs> I will say this, it's amazing how relevant the Word of God is. Is it not? 
And you see, what happens is it looks like they're going to get off and get off and get off. But uh, verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Okay, here you go. Elijah shows up and basically, uh, basically, the Lord says to Elijah, arise, go down and meet Ahab, who is in Samaria. He's in the vineyard of Naboth where he's gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, thus says the Lord. Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. There's a day of reckoning, and there's a day of account. And the same thing would happen to his wife. But you see, these people in power, they think it belongs to them. It doesn't belong to them. I came across this recently. Two men who lived in England who were communists, who heard the gospel, and both became Christians. They'd been friends for years. Both came to know Christ right around the same time, and together they wrote the socialist 23rd Psalm. The government is my shepherd. Therefore, I need not work. It allows me to lie down on a good job. It leads me beside still factories. It destroys my initiative. It leads me in the path of a parasite for politics' sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of laziness and deficit spending, I fear no evil, for the government is with me. Thou preparest an economic utopia for me by appropriating the earnings of my own grandchildren. It fills my head with false security. My inefficiency runneth over. Surely the government should care for me all the days of my life, and I shall live forever in a fool's paradise. That's socialism. Absolute socialism, which is anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-truth. And it's resurrecting all around us. Let's talk now. Let me give you a third point. The confusion of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal, which protects property rights. What would be the confusion? If you go to the book of Acts, there are some, and you'll read this and you'll hear this here and there, that some Christians really say, well, you know, actually capitalism, the free market is not a good thing. And listen, anything, listen, there are guys who are capitalists that that are crooks. The free market can be a place of bribery and deceit and all kinds of things. It, it, it really comes down to your heart. But in terms of the principles which God have given, has given, he has given these principles. Um, there are some that look at the books of Acts and have actually made the attempt, believe it or not, to try and justify socialism or communism out of the early chapters of Acts. If you look at Acts chapter 2, we read these words uh, in verse 44 and verse 46. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Uh, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. It was an amazing time. And all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Ah, there you go, see? 
They had socialism, communism in the early church. Well, let's keep reading. They had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. All right, now let's break that down. The reason why this wasn't communism or socialism is that they did this of their own free will and volition. They weren't told to do it. They weren't commanded to do it. They wanted to do it. They loved God. What's the first commandment? You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. And Jesus said, and the second is the same as the first. You shall love your neighbor as thyself. So you have a neighbor in need? Well, gosh, I got plenty. Let me help you out. That's not socialism. They wanted to do that. Socialism, communism, is oppression by the government. They force you to do this. These people weren't forced. Then you go to Acts 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Now watch this. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed, each one as they had need. Were they made to sell their houses? No. Were their houses taken over by the government? No. They felt that they should in order to meet a need. This is not socialism. This is not communism. God just worked in their hearts, and they felt led to do it, and they did it. Okay? So the next time somebody comes along and says that to you, you can help them out. Karl Marx said, the theory of the communist may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. That's the central tenet of communism, abolition of private property. You go to communist countries, and you know what they are? They're just one big prison. North Korea, South Korea. One's a prison. You live in fear. You can't choose your own career. You work where they tell you to work. You work for how long? You can't comparison shop. You can't do anything. You have no rights. You live in total and constant fear. Compare that to South Korea. East Berlin, West Berlin. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. You live in Russia, it's tough. And it was tough for many, many, many years. It was just subsistence living, trying to eke out through those long, harsh winters, just trying not to starve. But the elite who had offices in the Kremlin, how did they live? Oh my gosh. They lived like Venezuela elite. Venezuela elite learned that from Cuban elites who learned it from Russian elites. You see, it's just flat out 
theft. If they take your property, they got you. You can't move and you can't breathe. You say, now you're getting political. I, I'm just getting Bible. That's all I'm doing. Even our own documents said, say, say that we have been endowed by our creator with rights. Rights don't come from the state. They come from God. They come from here. Let's go to number four. The stewardship of the eighth commandment. The stewardship. Um, I'm going to quote Grudem here. Property is a stewardship that we have from God. Now, before I quote him, if you have your Bible, turn over to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And then look at 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And what do you have that you did not receive? Whatever it is that you enjoy and benefit from, it's a gift from God and it has been given to you. Were you a better athlete than everybody else in your high school? Uh, you were given great hand-eye coordination and you were given this and you were given that. It's a gift. Can you do math in your sleep? Can you do algorithms in your sleep? It's no big deal to you. You, you never did homework and you went to Caltech and you got a 4.0? That's a gift. It's a gift. Do you have a photographic memory? That's a gift. Can you figure out something without ever looking at the direction? You just say, oh, it goes there and it goes there. And you know, can you put the Golden Gate Bridge together without architectural drawings? That's a gift. And some of you guys have those abilities. What do you have that you did not receive? What are you good at? How do you make a living? What are your strengths? They were given to you by Almighty God. We're to be stewards of those gifts, whatever they are, whatever your assets are, whatever your possessions, we're stewards and we'll give an account. So Grudem says this, we are accountable to God for how we use our property. If God himself has commanded you shall not steal, and if in that commandment God himself establishes a system of private property, then it follows that we are accountable to him for how we use that property. This is certainly the Bible's perspective. Our ownership of property is not absolute, but we are stewards who will have to give an account for our stewardship. That is ultimately because everything belongs to God. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. In practical terms, once I realize that God commands others not to steal my land, my ox, or my donkey, or my car, or my laptop, then I understand that I have an individual responsibility on in how those things are used. I've been entrusted with those things by the God who created the universe, and I must act as a faithful steward to manage what he's entrusted to me. What Paul says about his stewardship of the ministry of the gospel can be applied in a broader sense to everything that God entrusts to us. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So what has God entrusted to you? You'll give an account. So you want to handle it wisely. You want to handle it responsibly. That's what you want to do with it. 
I've known some guys over the years. I met some guys who have been businessmen that have that are absolutely sold out to Christ, that have done incredibly well. It shocks them, the favor and blessing of God. They're astonished by it. They didn't come from money, but God just blessed their work and their endeavor. And one guy in particular I've known for a long, long time. He, he's done uh, exceptionally, exceptionally, exceptionally well took some of what he had retired with to each of his children, gave some as a start, but not a lot, because he wants them to work, and he wants them to earn. So they have a bit of a head start, but they're not spoiled. Uh, He now basically is involved in ministry and in investing, financial investing. But everything that comes in off the investment, every dime, goes to kingdom ministries. And he and his wife have set a goal that everything that they own will be given away upon their death. When they die, they want to be able to say, silver and gold have I none. They're stewards. They're called to that. What are your gifts? What are your assets? Just something each guy's got to figure out. Let's, are you guys still with me? Okay. All right, now. So God, God has been good to us. He's blessed us. He's favored us. What are the benefits of the Eighth Commandment? The commandment is you shall not steal. That must mean that I've got some property, I've got assets that someone could steal. So I've got some stuff that God has given to me and there are some benefits that have accrued into my life. Again, I'm gonna quote from, from Grudem here. He's gonna give four benefits that come from the private ownership of property and assets, or if you have a business, or if you have land, or if you've got, whatever you've got, it comes under this. He's going to give four benefits. Number one, a continual opportunity for glorifying God. He says we can use our property and other stewardship assets responsibly. We can use them either wisely or foolishly. This, mean that we sh- this means that we should not think that the desire to own things over which we exercise stewardship is an evil desire in itself. Now, this is really good because Christians get weird on this. I want to say this again. This means that we should not think that the desire to own things over which we exercise stewardship is an evil desire in itself. In fact, he says this. If we use our property wisely, we reflect God's wisdom, his creativity, and his sovereignty over creation compared to our derived sovereignty over a small portion of his creation. What he's saying is this. Every man has a sphere of influence. Uh, Adam had the Garden of Eden. He had uh, stewardship. He was to till it. He was to work it. He was to be responsible. He was to do his work. 
Um, you've got, that, that was his sphere of influence. You've got a sphere of influence. Uh, you've got financial assets, you've got a house, or you've got an apartment, or whatever the heck you have. That's your sphere of influence. It includes people, uh, it includes some geographical boundaries, and that's pretty much where you live your life, and you'll travel now and then, but that's pretty much it. And see, that's your little, and over that, God has given you dominion. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. And he gave them a stewardship. We don't worship the earth. We worship the God who made the earth. But we got it all screwed up. But we got our little sections of earth. If you have a desire to exercise stewardship, it's not a bad desire. It's a God-given desire to imitate in a very faint way his sovereignty over creation. The imitation of God's sovereignty is implied in the command to Adam and Eve that they should fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the creatures. That glorifies God. When I'm active, when I'm creative, we'll get to this in a minute. When I produce stuff, it glorifies God. Um, second benefit. It's a continual opportunity to give, for giving thanks to God. 1 Timothy 6.17, God is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So be thankful. Are you thankful today for the sunshine? Are you thankful for health? I got up and I said, Lord, I thank you that I slept. I thank you that I don't have any pain. Because I got a brother that lives in chronic pain. I don't know why I said that, but I did. I slept and I slept well and I don't have pain. Thank you. I got a wife that loves me. I'm blessed. Just take it a day at a time and be thankful. Third, a continual sense of joy. Uh, when we view the things that God has entrusted to us as gifts from him, that he wants us to enjoy Thanksgiving, then we can rightly set our hearts on God, watch this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17. He does not say that God provides us with everything to feel guilty about. Sometimes God just blesses us because he loves us. He just flat out loves us. It's just the goodness of God. It's the mercy of God. It's the kindness of God. And he does things to give us joy. Now, do we have our struggles and our hardships and our adversities? Yeah. We also have things to be joyful about. Man, I got arthritis in my legs. Well, at least you got legs. Right? There are guys who'd like to have arthritis in their legs. They don't have legs. It's all perspective. Here's the fourth one. It's a continual test of our hearts. What's a continual test of our hearts? Well, the benefits that come from all the assets and good things that God gives to us. It's a continual test of our hearts. Though the possessions that God entrusts to us are good in themselves, they also provide a continual test of what is in our hearts. King David wisely warns, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Psalm 62, 10. It was John Wesley who said, earn all you can, give all you can, and save all you can. That's good. Earn all you can. Don't feel guilty about it. God blesses you. Great. Earn all you can. And then give all you can. 
Because give, greatest financial principle in the history of the world, Jesus said, give and it shall be, oh, given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. You give, and you know, that's interesting, give and it shall be given to you, pressed down, running over, shaken together, running over. Um, you give a portion, and when God gives back, you've seen those, uh, you put grain in a, like a, a sack of some kind. And you ever go to Costco and you're going on a picnic and you buy these huge bags of potato chips and you get out to the lake and you open them up and there's two inches of potato chips. <laughs> and you got about three feet of space. Well, what happened? Well, when they filled it, it was full. But it settled. See, God never gives us back something that settles. You give, and he'll give back to you. Press down. Here, put some more in there. Shake that thing up. Press down. Shake it together. Get some more in there. Shake that some more. Settle it down. Settle that. Running over. Earn all you can. Give all you can. Save all you can. Um, God wants to bless us, but he doesn't want to ruin us. Jesus said in Matthew 6, you cannot love God and money. You got to decide who your God is. First Timothy 6 says, those who want to get rich fall into a trap and a snare and a temptation. There's nothing wrong with wanting to provide. There's nothing wrong with wanting to use your gifts and skills, but you have to be careful about loving money because money can turn your heart. Stewardship provides the basis for human achievement and flourishing on the earth. And then he has what he calls the expectation of human achievement. He says, there is an, are you guys still with me? Okay. Because this is why we get up and go to work. This is why, why guys start businesses. This is why guys are active and creative and do stuff. See, if you live in a communist country, you can't be innovative. You can't be creative. You can't do a startup. You can't, you can't do it because you live in a prison. But under God's system, you've got opportunity to use your gifts and skills. So he says this, there is another, the expectation of human achievement. There is another implication of this idea of stewardship of private property. If God entrusts us with property as stewards, then he expects us to do something worthwhile with it, something that he finds valuable. Remember, he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Hebrew word translated as subdue, kabosh, means to make the earth useful for human beings, benefit and enjoyment. And by implication, the entire human race with stewardship over the earth. God wanted them, catch this, God wanted them to create useful products from the earth for their benefit and enjoyment. At first, perhaps, simple structures in which to live and store food. Later, various forms of transportation, such as carts and wagons. Then eventually, modern homes, office buildings, factories, as well as car, uh, cars and airplanes. The entire range of useful products that could be made from the earth. In this way, God gave to human beings the ability to create value in a world that didn't exist before. And see, somebody comes up with this, and somebody comes up with that, and somebody, and what does it do? It benefits. It benefits. It benefits. 
I mean, you talk about guys with no legs coming back from Afghanistan. Those guys are running marathons. Because somebody, you see, used their gifts and their skills, and it wasn't just one guy, but it was a team, and then they get together, and they're working with this tech, and you see it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it, and you're doing something. And you're contributing. Yeah, you're making a living, but you see you're also loving your neighbor as yourself. Because God gave to human beings the command to subdue the earth, it's reasonable to conclude that he also placed in our hearts a desire to fulfill that command. In fact, we see abundant evidence from the conduct of the human race throughout history that human beings have had an innate desire to understand the earth and to create useful things from it. It's called manna. Manna. So you don't love the assets and you don't love the natural gas and you don't love this and you don't love that. You love him. You see. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you in his way, in his time. So, Father, we trust you with our lives. We thank you that in order to survive and to take care of our families, we don't have to cheat, we don't have to lie, we don't have to steal. We don't have to sign something that's untrue. We don't have to give in to pressure from our superiors uh, to sign off on something that we know that is wrong and illegal. We don't have to do that because our trust is in you. You are our provider. You are our Lord. You are our, our deliverer. You are our savior. We don't have to sin in order to be provided for. In fact, it's the opposite. Because the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. May we be those men. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.